Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17, we're going to look at the first part of this critical story in 1 Samuel. As you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome those who are joining us via our live stream each and every week. We've got a lot of you that join up with us in that way. We're grateful for you. Also want to welcome uh, Reach Church DeSoto and the venue service meeting right down the hall. Also, I want to uh, introduce somebody to you that many of you already know, um, but some of you may not. I want to invite uh, Darren Oglesby up here. Darren Oglesby is going to be our campus pastor for Reach Church Payola, and we are nearing completion. Yeah, you can go ahead. I'm excited for Darren and Heather and and uh, we believe that he is God's man for this role, and uh, there's a lot of work that's been going on, so I asked Darren to come up, give you an update today, and how you can get involved. Yeah, so I, I spoke last night, and I decided to switch the message up this morning, because I just felt like there's this story that you guys need to hear about Paola, and I think it's the best way to explain what God is doing and what I think he's about to do in Paola. And so really, I want to take you back to September of last year. And it was around that time that me and Heather and the kids went out and visited the church building for the first time. And I don't know if you're familiar with Paola, but in the heart of the city, there's a little town square. And God has blessed us with just an incredible building right on the corner. And so we go to the building, and this was before any of the construction or the remodeling had started. And so we're walking in, and the lights are dim, it's, it's dark. We told the kids to bring some flashlights with them because we knew we were going to kind of explore around and look around. We started making our way down into the basement, and we're walking down these old wooden stairs, and it's dark and dusty, and the kids are taking their flashlights, and they walk across the room, and we come up to this huge stone wall, and in the middle of the wall, about two feet off the ground, you can imagine it's about right here, there's this big oval hole that had been blown out of the stone wall. And so we kind of step up into it, and we walk into the room. It's kind of a long, narrow room, and we're walking to the back, and we keep walking, and as we get towards the back of the building, I notice I'm starting to, like, duck down. I'm like, what's going on? Well, it isn't until I turn around that I realize the floor is at just a crazy angle, and the ceiling is right, right above us. I mean, my little eight-year-old daughter, she could just about reach her hands up and touch the ceiling. And at that time, I'm thinking, man, I know this is an old building, but surely they had tools. They could have figured out how to level a floor. And so I want to take you now to just two weeks ago when, again, uh, me and Heather and the kids and Jim was along with us. We went out to visit Paola and get a, a meeting with the project manager so he could give us an update on how the building construction is going. And we made our way back downstairs into that room. And they had been doing some work on one of the steel uh, pillars in that room. And the project manager looked at us and he said, well, I think I found out why the floor is so unlevel. And he said, we started trying to drill down into the floor and what we realized that the bedrock that this building is built on was so solid, so strong that they couldn't cut through it. So he said, whatever you do, you're gonna have to have this sloped room. So we'll make it a skating rink or something, I don't know. <laughs> but it made me think, and I, I told Pastor Chad this in the first service, that I don't know if it's just that when you become a pastor, everything starts to look like a sermon illustration, but <laughs> it made me think of Ephesians 2, where it talks about God's household is being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. And so when I think about God putting us in that area 
right there on the corner, built on a solid rock of Jesus. It just gives me a lot of encouragement about what he's planning to do. It's going to be a small church. It's a small town. Paola actually means small. Uh, but we've seen in, throughout the Bible that it just takes a mustard seed, and it can become a mighty tree of righteousness. And so we see his hand. We see him working not only in the details of Paola, but we see God at work building his house with the new members that are coming to church and professing faith, getting baptized. We see it in the missions groups that we're sending to every corner of the world. We see it in revitalized churches like we see in Fellowship Olathe, and we see it in new churches like in DeSoto and in Reach. And what we've seen time and time again is that God moves through his Holy Spirit to accomplish these things. But it's also a result of your willingness and your faithfulness to give that allows us to take on projects and do these types of things. But we've seen, and we've heard Chad talk about it multiple times, that you simply can't outgive God. And so he's now given us a new opportunity to go to a new city and to build a new church. And it's exciting. If you are interested in being part of that process or you want to learn more about Paola, you can do two things. First thing you can do is text uh, RCP to our text line at 89449, and that'll put you on the notification list so you'll get uh, updates about some of the impact events that we're going to be doing over the summer. There's going to be a lot of uh, community outreach opportunities that we'll have, and so you'll get connected with those important dates. And then the next thing you can do is make plans to attend our first interest meeting, which is going to take place next Sunday. That's March 19th. It'll take place right out there in the pastor's reception room, and we'll get started just immediately following the 11 o'clock service. So ultimately, I just want to share, God's doing some amazing work, and it's an exciting time to be a part of this church. We are certainly blessed to be able to partake in it, and so we just want to give him praise and all the glory. Let's go ahead and pray as we continue in our service. Father in heaven, we just thank you for this time to come together in your house and to think about how good you are and all the blessings that you've poured out, not only on this church, but through this church. And so, Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for the gift of Jesus. Lord, I pray that as Pastor Chad takes us through a familiar passage today, I, I just pray that it would rest freshly in our minds and that the word would dwell in our hearts and ultimately that it would change us and that God, that Jesus would get all the glory. Lord, we love you. We lift these things up to you through Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Darren. Very, very exciting. I hope and pray that you'll pray about, especially those that you, have, you live further down south, and uh, maybe God would lead you to join up with this work as we try to reach that community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, 1 Samuel 17 uh, this morning. Uh, many of you have probably been waiting on this chapter. The great danger uh, for pastors is preaching these well-known texts. Um, sometimes I think I'd rather preach the difficult passages than these well-known ones because you're thinking, or at least I'm thinking, how can you mess this deal up, you know, a story like this? Uh, but I'll tell you, I've tried a few times to mess up some of these stories, but we're praying that God will just speak with clarity this morning. There's some great principles, some great truths. We're going to take two weeks to look at um, 1 Samuel 17. We probably should have taken three, but we're going to try to do it in two. Um, but great lessons here. David, uh, God is raising him up. Uh, you remember that God, uh, his spirit has departed from Saul. Um, his spirit has rushed upon David. There's a descending of Saul, and there's going to be an ascending 
of David as God begins to work in his life. It's interesting because God anoints him as king and then what does he do? He just goes back to shepherding. Now he'll serve in uh, the king's court and he'll go and minister the king. Um, but for the most part, he's just serving the Lord, just being faithful in his ordinary life. You know, as I was studying this, I think that so often in our lives, we're interested in developing leaders when God is really just interested in developing servants. Um, God develops servants, people who just love serving him and love serving people, and they're faithful in the ordinary activities of their life, and then uh, greatness just kind of interrupts their, their faithfulness, and that's certainly what we're going to see in David's life. He's just faithful, and all the circumstances that preceded this moment were preparation for this moment when God will kind of bring him in and uh, to this place where he'll become all that God has called him to be. I think all of us can identify with that to some extent. Those of us, we, we know Jesus Christ. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He's made us unique. He's given us certain gifts and talents and abilities. And oftentimes our lives seem a little strange and meandering. And we don't know why God's got us over here. And then he pulls us over here. Then he puts us over there. And he's just asking us to be faithful. Until there comes a day when he kind of brings us into a moment. And we realize this is what God created us to do. This is what God designed us to do. And David's coming into his moment. He's like a, like a fish in water. That's what I say. When, when, when a man comes into, a man or woman comes into that place where their gifts and their talents and their abilities meet up with what they're passionate about in God's will, they just go, whoosh, you know, you ever catch one of those trout, you know, and you, you get it on the line, you take it out, and then you unhook it, and you just kind of release it, and it goes, whoosh. don't you like that? Whoosh. Yeah, that's... That's a fish in water. Um, but <laughs> David, he's kind of been floundering around. And then this moment, he's going to go. He's a fish in water. He's going to come into his moment. And it's not all going to be easy from here on out. But I believe David will begin to understand some of what God's doing in his life. So with that in mind, let's just pray together once more. And then we'll look at this text. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, nobody in this room needs to hear from me today. I'm weak, I really don't have any great wisdom. God, I'm so grateful you've spoken to us in your word. Lord, I think sometimes we just do well to read the text. Because the power's in your word. So Lord, I, I just pray for this, uh, these few moments um, we would calm our hearts and we would come with uh, teachable spirits and hearts to learn from you. The passage we all know, this story, we've, we've probably all heard this story since we were really little. And uh, I pray our familiarity with the text would not um, cause us to be unteachable. We come with fresh eyes today to hear from you and to be changed by you, to be drawn to you. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you have chosen the weak things of this world, the base things of this world, to shame the things that are strong, to shame the wise. We thank you that you just love using servants. Teach us today. Speak through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look with me as we begin in verse 1 of 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokah, 
uh, which belongs to Judah. And they camped between Soka and Azekah in Ephes Demim. So here the Philistines, they're encroaching upon Israelite territory again. Some of the commentators believe that they have heard about Samuel's departure from King Saul. And maybe they see the people of Israel in a position of weakness and think that now is the time for us to come against them. Whatever the case may be, they've encroached on some of God's territory. Here they are again. They would consistently be a thorn in Saul's side. Some believe that Saul had his opportunity to push them completely out at Michmash. And yet he gave some foolish uh, orders to his army that prevented them from being able to fully annihilate them. So here they are again. And it's a critical battle because this will be the first battle that Saul will fight post the departure of the Spirit. It's at this moment that God just kind of pulls the plug on King Saul and says, you want to do it your own way? You, you, you want to do it in your own power? Well, let's see, let's see how that goes. Um, Saul's life at this moment is brought down to the level of his own ability. What's really sad about this, though, is Saul, from a physical perspective, he's pretty impressive. He was the guy that the nation chose. He was the most impressive of all of them. But what we're going to see today is that when God pulls the plug, it doesn't matter how physically impressive you are. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You're nothing apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. So let's see how you do, Saul. When all you have to rely upon is you, let's see how it goes. In verse two, Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Allah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. There they are in the valley of Allah. It's this ravine, this brook, this stream between two mountains. You can go there today. Verse three, the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. So the two armies, they've come against each other. They're both standing on these mountains and it's kind of a stalemate. Neither, neither army wants to advance upon the other because if you advance, you had to go down in the valley and now you put yourself in a position of weakness. The other army would have the advantage because they would be at the high point. And so neither one of them wants to advance upon the other for fear of being annihilated. But the Philistines have... Uh, have a plan. In verse four, then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. So the Philistines, they have a champion. The word champion means a man in between. They have a, a representative man, and a champion was one who was skilled in fighting mano y mano, man to man. So he steps out here, and he's the champion that they've put forth, and we're going to see an incredibly detailed description of Goliath. In fact, uh, probably no more detailed description of any individual, especially from a physical standpoint, no more detailed physical description of an enemy or a man in all of Scripture than the description we get of King Saul. Why is that important? Because you'll remember in chapter 16, what did God say? I don't judge on the basis of appearances. Appearances don't matter to me, and then all of a sudden here we're going to get this very detailed description of Goliath, and God does so for a very important reason to remind us that while this man be, might be incredibly impressive in man's eyes, he ain't much to me. Satan loves to present himself as being a whole lot bigger than he really is. And so uh, Goliath is going to present him as being 
physically impressive, but he's nothing to God. It says that he was uh, six cubits in a span in height. Uh, the, the very conservative estimate on this would be around uh, nine feet, six inches tall. On the other end of this, you have some who would conjecture that he's around 11 feet tall. So either way, this is a, an incredibly tall individual. Uh, nine foot, six inches, right, right underneath a basketball goal. Uh, he would make Minute Bull look small. Uh, this is a tall guy. And one of the things that we're going to see is a lot of times when we see, in fact, you think about uh, basketball players who are incredibly tall, oftentimes those who are really tall are not physically strong. So they're, they're slender. They, they sometimes look very frail. Um, we're going to see that this man is incredibly tall and his, he, he is by no means frail. He's, he's physically impressive in every way. It says also here he's from Gath. Why is that important? Because you'll remember when the uh, Israelites went into the promised land, the land of Canaan, uh, they sent the spies in and the 10 spies came back with a bad report because they said they found these people here who were the sons of Anak. And you remember they were incredibly tall. They were huge. They were physically impressive. And in fact, the Israelites said, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. We can't come up against them. There's no way we can attack these folks. And when Joshua leads the people into the promised land, Joshua eleven twenty one, they will push out the sons of Anak. It says in eleven twenty one in Joshua that they, they pushed out all the Anakim except for in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. So there remain some of these sons of Anak, and it appears that Goliath is one of these sons of Anak, physically impressive, not only physically impressive, but impressive in terms of his armament and his uh, weaponry. Verse five, it says he had a bronze helmet on his head and he was clothed with scale armor which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He got this bronze helmet all of this is incredibly advanced. And we know this historically, that the Philistines were advanced in their use of metal for armament and weapons. And, and, uh, and so here we see this helmet would have been incredibly advanced for this day. And not only that, but he's got this um, armament, this scale armor, probably uh, much like chain mail uh, linked together. It would have been almost impenetrable uh, by means of swords or spears. Uh, it says here its weight, uh, the estimate on its weight would be about 125 pounds. Can you imagine that? So his armor alone weighs 125 pounds. This is a very impressive man. It says in verse 6, he also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. He's got these greaves on his legs. If you're 9 foot 6 inches tall, you're going to need something to protect your legs. Because you've got long legs. So here he is, and he's got these greaves that would have protected his legs from the knees down. Um, it says also that he's got this javelin between his shoulders. Javelin would have been used for more distance, because we're going to see in the next verse he's got a spear. Uh, the javelin would have been a little lighter, a little smaller, used for longer range uh, objects in, in warfare. And then the spear, we see in the next verse, the shaft of his spear uh, was like a weaver's beam. And the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. So he's got this spear, uh, a weaver's beam, probably around five feet in length. And this shekel, uh, the, the head of this spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's, that's 25 pounds. If you've been to the gym, uh, you know me, I go to the gym all the time. It looks like it, doesn't it? I'm a really impressive guy. But um, if you go to the gym, you take one of those 25-pound weights, 
Bill goes to the gym all the time, don't you? Those 25 pounds, nothing to Bill. He just picks that thing up. And <laughs> this would be nothing to Bill. But, uh, but 25 pound weight, you hold one of those things. It's, it, can you imagine trying to throw, just throw the 25 pound weight? This guy's incredibly impressive in his ability and his strength. So he's got this spear, this huge spear. And the commentator said this spear would have been used for shorter distances, but if you threw it at a short distance towards an individual, it would just go, it would run right through a man. Um, so you can see all this. And, and beyond that, he's got a, a shield carrier that walks out in front of him, uh, probably carrying a shield, the commentator said, about the size of a door. How would you like to be that guy, by the way? You're going out in front of him and standing in front of him with this big shield that's about five foot tall. But the picture here is that this guy, Goliath, is invincible. There's no weakness in this guy. He, he's, he's impressive in every way. He's physically impressive. His, his uh, armament, impressive. His weapons, impressive. We also know what else does he have that we're going to find out later. He got a sword. He got a javelin, a spear, and a sword. This guy can fight you from every angle, and there's no way you can really come against him. He is completely protected. Um, there are some that believe Jesus has this picture of Goliath in mind when he says in Luke eleven twenty one, 21, where he says, um, the strong man when he is fully armed, guards his house and his possessions are undisturbed. That a strong man, when he is fully armed, guards his house and his possessions are undisturbed. Now, who was Jesus talking about when he made that statement? He talked about Satan. What you have here in Goliath is a picture of Satan, that he's incredibly strong. He's incredibly impressive. Physically, he looks overwhelming. Physically, you can't come against this guy. But what we're going to find out very quickly is although he's impressive in the eyes of men, he ain't that big to God. He's not that big of an issue to God. As I said earlier, Satan loves to present himself as being bigger than he really is. Now make no mistake about it. If the battle is us versus Satan, if the battle is us versus Goliath, we're doomed. From an earthly, physical perspective, we can't come. Uh, think about Satan. We sometimes say, well, the battle's us versus Satan. Listen, if it's us versus Satan, one angel in the Old Testament kills 185,000 men. You don't stand a chance on your own against Satan. And David and all the Israelite army doesn't stand a chance if it's just mano y mano. But what we're going to find out is that Israel, although they're not acting like it, David will. And what makes the difference is there's somebody on David's side who is bigger than Goliath. So here's this physically impressive man. Not only is he physically impressive, but he's psychologically impressive. He's, he's intimidating. He's taunting. Look at verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out and drop in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Uh, he asked them a question that they were probably asking, all, the Israelite army was probably asking themselves, why, why do we get dressed up every day if we're not going to do anything? That's what Goliath is saying to the Israelite army. What, 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 you guys say you believe in God. You say your God is the one true God and he is all powerful. 
And yet you get out here and you won't do anything. You're scared to death. You get all dressed up, talk a big game. But when the Goliath and the champion comes out before you, none of you will step forward to meet the challenge. In other words, you know what Goliath is saying to them? You must not really believe in your God. Because if you did, one of y'all would step out here and fight me. As I was reading that, I just studied that, it stuck with me. Because I believe today, there are a lot of Christians who say they believe in God. But they live as practical atheists. You talk a big game. Uh, You come to church, you get all dressed up, you sing these praises. But how do you respond when you face your Goliaths in life? Do do you really believe that God is sovereign? Do do you really believe that God is all-powerful? Do you really believe that God is good? Do you really believe that God is with you? And if you do, is it demonstrated in how you live? Because what Goliath is saying is you guys talk a big game. But listen, what you really believe, it will show up in your life. So you must not really believe what you say you believe because you won't do anything to me. And so he says, choose a man for yourselves. Send somebody out here. Send somebody out here. Choose a man. The fact of the matter is Israel already chose a man, didn't they? They chose a man who was physically impressive, who was supposed to be their champion, yet where's he at now? He's scared to death. In fact, we're going to find out next week, he's willing to pay good money for somebody else to go lay down their life. But he ain't going to move a finger because he's scared. Do you know what Israel is learning and what we have to learn in our lives? If you put your faith, your hope, and confidence in anything other than God, he will let you down. They put their hope and confidence in their champion, a man, Saul, who was physically impressive. But when push came to shove, see, this is the deal. When you put your, your hope in something physical, something earthly, the fact of the matter is you'll always find somebody bigger. Um, wouldn't it be great if we had somebody who was bigger than everybody and every obstacle? Wouldn't it be great if Israel would just call on the name of the Lord who's bigger than Goliath? They won't do it. They're scared. So we move on. He says, if you'll send this guy out, if he's able to fight with me and kill me, we will become your servants But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. What's interesting about that is that is not, that's all talk. Because the fact of the matter is, now he, he probably doesn't think there's any way anybody can beat him. But when David does beat him, do they say, all right, well, we'll serve you? No, they run. So it was all talk. It was a bluff. Verse 10, again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They're scared to death. Here's their champion, cowering in fear. Why? Because God has pulled the plug. This is the response of a man apart from the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And Saul has neither. 
the spirit has departed him and Samuel, the representation of the word of God, is no longer in his life. Listen, you remove yourself from the spirit of God and the word of God, this is what you end up with. So he's scared to death. He's cowering in fear. And the other thing I thought about is, where is Jonathan? I mean, because we've already seen Jonathan step forward in very courageous manner earlier in, in, the, in the book. But here, in the first thing that I thought of is, as goes the leadership, so goes the nation. When your leadership is scared and fearful, when the leadership doesn't base its life on the word of God and step forward in courage, the people will follow in fear and trepidation. No Abner, no Jonathan, they're all scared. And here's the question, is there a champion? Is there somebody out there? Is there a great champion who will stay in the gap and be willing to lay down his life and step forward in the confidence that God is with him? Verse 12, now David. Here he is. Here's their champion. And listen, he doesn't bring much to the table. He, he's not physically impressive. He doesn't have royal lineage. He's not the firstborn. But he brings something else. Look at what it says. David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah, whose name was Jesse. He had eight sons, and Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to battle. The names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, the second to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend the father's flock at Bethlehem. So here is David. Here's their champion. You know who their champion is? A servant. Uh, David, he doesn't look like Saul. Not physically impressive. He's just faithful. He's a shepherd. He does what his father asks him to do. When the king asks him to come, play the guitar, he comes and plays his guitar. He does it as best he can. He's faithful to whatever God tells him to do. He's just obedient. He's the guy who blooms where, he, where he's planted. Wherever God puts him, he's just gonna be faithful. He's gonna trust in the Lord with all his heart and lean not upon his own understanding. In all his ways, he acknowledges the Lord and the Lord makes his path straight. That ought to be a Bible verse. He's just gonna trust in God right where God has placed him. And at the right time and in the right way, God will raise him up. I, I can't help but wonder if David in these moments of just going back and forth from serving, he's been anointed king. God, what in the world are you doing? This does not make sense. And the Lord's saying to him, listen, you just gotta trust me. <laughs> it, it reminded me of that great theological movie, Karate Kid. You remember that great, deep theological movie? You remember uh, Daniel wants to win that tournament? Mr. Miyagi agrees to train him. All right, here we go. We're gonna get in training. What do you want me to do? Wash your car. All right, that's good. What are we gonna do next? Uh, sand the floor. That's good. How about paint the fence? Okay. Paint the house. All right, paint the house. You remember, though, Daniel's son, he gets mad. 
ain't doing this no more. I'm wanting to, I want to win a tournament. You want a servant, and I'm tired of being a servant. You remember right when he's about to get up? Mr. Miyagi calls him over. Show me. Wash the car. Show me center, center floor. And what does he realize? All the things that he was doing was preparation so that he could achieve the victory. What is God doing? He's molding David into a man who trusts him with all his heart. Because if I'm going to have a man who leads my people, he's got to trust me even when he doesn't understand. And he's got to know that I'm with him. And all those days of David being just out in a field with sheep. Now, don't you think he got upset? Afternoons, blazing heat. Here he is, the anointed king of Israel. He's taking care of sheep. And when the servant calls, he's got to go play his guitar. And God's molding him. Now, the one of the things that I think of is you're going to see David's life. Man, this is a guy who loved the word of God. All those days, it was just him and God and the word of God. And we're going to see a man who what he believed about God will affect his behavior. This was a reminder to me. Listen to me. All those people say, theology doesn't matter. Oh, David would say, au contraire. People say experience is all that matters. Listen to me. It was what David knew to be true about God that affected what he did. Listen, when you understand that God is God and that he is sovereign and that he is all-powerful and he's all-knowing and he's all-wise and he's with you, if God's with me, who can be against me? And that Philistine dog doesn't stand a chance against God. So we read on. Philistine came forward morning and evening, 40 days, took a stand. 40 days, time of testing. They failed the test. They're at a dark day. Verse 17, then Jesse said to David, his son, take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain, these 10 loaves. Run to the camp of your brothers. Bring also these 10 cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand. Look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. For Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Here's David, the beloved son. He's just going to do what God told him to do. Verse 20, David arose when? Early in the morning. I love that. David was an early riser. Here's what I've learned about every great man and woman of faith. They get up early. They normally have an addictive substance called coffee, a lot of them. And they get a cup of coffee and they just get alone with God and his word. David got up early. He was ready to go. He was eager. He was disciplined. He left the flock with the keeper. Don't you love that too? He doesn't say, well, these sheep, now they're nothing. I got work to do. No, he's still going to be responsible. I got to take care of this flock. He was a responsible young man. And he went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going into the battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. Do you see that there? David, the rest of the army is cowering in fear. They won't move. And it tells us about David. When he heard the battle, what did he do? 
He ran to the battle line. Not because David thought that much of himself, but because he thought that much of the God that he served. It's probably the first time he has ever heard anybody defy God. And he says, not when I'm around. And he runs to the battle because what he believes about God and knows about God to be true in his word overrides what he can see with his eyes and enables him to stand up underneath the pressure that he faces. Listen to me. What do I tell you so often? You want to be great for God. Before you're great for God in public, you got to be great for God in private. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Know your Bible. And what we know to be true about God and his word gives us the strength to step out in courage when we face the Goliaths of our life. You know, as I read this story, more often than not, we, uh, we want to identify with David, which there's some great stories there, but identify with David. I don't know about you, but the more I read this story, do you know who I identified with in this story? The Israelite army. We have an enemy, he's strong. You know what he loves to do? He loves to come to us and say, you're nothing. You're worthless. You can't do it, he taunts us. He's physically impressive. His voice is loud. He screams into our ears. You'll fail. Don't you dare step out. God may have been for those other people, but you really think God's going to show up for you. And I must confess that far too often I cower in fear. But it reminds me all the more the need to get alone with God and his word. And to hear the voice of God, to be reminded that greater is he that's in me than he that is in the world. To be reminded that I'm a child of God. And he loves me and he is with me. And to do that every day. David, when he got up that morning, early that morning, do you think that he was getting ready to slay a giant? You ever heard the saying, you never know what a day will bring? You never know what day might be your greatest hour of testing. That's why every day you get up early and get in God's word so that you can be filled with his spirit filled with his word so that when the enemy comes and your morning or your day of testing arrives, you'll be ready to stand up underneath it and run to the battle line rather than cowering in fear. You know, the bigger picture of this story, and we're gonna see it again next week, but the bigger picture, you ought to see it. If you don't, you need to see it. This is not just about David and Goliath. It's not just about the Philistines and the Israelites. You know what this story is about? This story is about the enemy of the people of God. And they have a champion. And his name is Satan. And he's strong and he is impressive. And he taunts the people of God. 
And he loves to attack. He goes to the centerpiece of God's creation. Since the beginning of creation, he goes to the man, the woman, and he lies to us, and he deceives us, and he discourages us, and he distracts us. And he tells us we're guilty, and we are. He tells us we're sinners, and we are. And the question is, that Goliath posed to the people of God, do you have a champion? Do you have a champion? Is there somebody out there? You know what David reminds us? He reminds us of a good shepherd, doesn't he? Who had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. He didn't look like the world's king because he was humble and he was lowly. But he was obedient. He was the beloved son of the father. And he stands between the enemy of God and the people of God. And he lays down his life and he defeats the enemy with his own instrument of death on the cross. And he conquers the grave in his death and resurrection. And through faith in Christ, we answer back to Satan. We do have a champion. And you are a defeated foe. And we're able to say together with Paul, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, David was confident. I'm here to tell you today, we as believers in Jesus Christ, we should be more confident we have more knowledge. We got more, we, we, more has been revealed to us in God's word. We know that Christ has won. He defeated sin, Satan, and death. What is man's greatest fear? What is, the, what is the one thing everybody's scared of? What's the one thing that everybody tries to avoid? What is it? Death. And the fact of the matter is, every one of us is going to face it. Unless there's a rapture, praise Jesus. If not, we're going to face it. And I don't know about you, but I think I'm just going to trust in the one who already defeated the grave. He has taken the sting of death away. And what, what is the worst the world can do to us? Kill us? We just get to be with Jesus. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Satan, he's been disarmed is what Paul tells us. All his weaponry has been disarmed. You remember the wizard, the Oz, the wizard that they think so great and they're scared and then they pull back the curtain, this little weak man? Do you know what God has done through Jesus Christ? He's pulled back the curtain on Satan. He's not as powerful as he says he is. He's a defeated foe, and we walk forward in victory, not on our own, but on the basis of Jesus Christ who died in our place. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, um, we thank you for our champion, Jesus Christ, who stands in the gap. David points us to the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. God, if there's anybody here today I pray that they would know today on the base of your word, this isn't my evaluation, but your word tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're objects of wrath. We're children of disobedience. The world tells us, or the Bible tells us that the whole world lies in the grip of the evil one. We're held captive to sin, Satan, and death. But the good news is you sent a champion, Jesus Christ, to die in our place and to defeat the grave so that we could have liberty, so that we could have freedom to walk as you have called us to walk, to walk forward in victory, knowing that no matter what happens to us in this world, we win because Christ won. God, if somebody here today doesn't know that victory, 
I pray that they would look to Jesus Christ, their champion, and they would place their faith in him, and they would know his salvation and his forgiveness. For those of us that do know you, I pray that we would walk forward in boldness and in victory, knowing that the battle has already been won. The greatest fear of our life has been defeated. And so, Lord, I pray that we would walk forward in boldness and in courage, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.